0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our uh, second panel discussion. I'm Bob Levy, the chairman of the board at at the Cato Institute, and this afternoon's uh, panel is entitled Guns, Enron, and Sexual Predators, the Scope of of, uh, Federal Power. Um, First, a very brief intro to the three cases that we'll be covering, and then we'll hear from our speakers. Uh, Let's start with uh, guns. Uh, In District of Columbia versus Heller, Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia rewrote the court's uh, Second Amendment uh, jurisprudence. He held first that the um, Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm in the home for self-defense, even if unconnected with malicious service. And second, that Washington, D.C.'s ban on all functional firearms is unconstitutional. But Washington, D.C. was not the whole story. And for the rest of the picture, we turn to this year's powerhouse case, and that is McDonald versus Chicago, which determined that the Second Amendment applies not only to federal jurisdictions, such as D.C., Guam, Samoa, and Puerto Rico, uh, but also to Illinois and other states and their localities. So that may well, we shall see, spell the end for draconian state and local gun regulations that constructively bar uh, the use of firearms for self-defense. That, however, was not all that McDonald was about. The court also had to determine whether the Second Amendment should be applied to the states uh, using the time-honored Due Process Clause, uh, or would the court revisit the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which had essentially been erased from the Constitution more than a century ago? And I am sure that we will hear from Alan Gurr why that choice between Due process and Privileges or Immunities was an important one. From the beginning, the battle for gun rights was structured as a three-step process. Uh, step one, determine the meaning of the Second Amendment. That was accomplished in the Heller case. Step two, determine where the Second Amendment applies. And that was accomplished in the McDonald case. Step three, uh, flesh out the scope of Second Amendment rights. Uh, that is to say, what regulations are still going to be permitted? And that will be the next step, which will unfold over the next several years. Our second case is about Enron. The case is Skilling versus United States, as in Jeffrey Skilling, the former Enron executive, de- uh, convicted of deceiving shareholders about Enron's uh, financial condition. Skilling was found guilty of a varietal, variety of uh, infractions, including depriving investors of his honest services. The Supreme Court, however, has held that the definition of honest services in federal law was so broad that it's unconstitutionally vague, meaning that it provides inadequate notice to citizens about what conduct is legal and what conduct uh, is not. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Writing for a six-vote court did not invalidate the law outright, but she did read it narrowly to cover only bribery uh, and kickbacks For Skilling and for many others, the court's decision may mean the invalidation of some, but not all, of the counts on which they were convicted. Uh, Some prosecutors have claimed uh, that the decision could invalidate hundreds of honest services uh, convictions, including two former governors, three former members of Congress, and a variety of uh, high-profile corporate executives. As to the longer-term implications, uh, honest services fraud has become one of the favorite arrows in the federal prosecutor's quiver. Numerous cases go beyond uh, the core areas of bribery and kickback to which the court's narrow view of the statute now applies. And Harvey Silverglate is going to help us understand whether we should applaud uh, this narrower scope of the law. Our third case is about the Necessary and Proper Clause. The case is United States uh, versus Comstock, and the court upheld a statute that authorized the Justice Department to civilly commit sexually dangerous persons after they had already completed Uh, their federal sentences for the crime. Uh, At issue was perhaps the most basic constitutional question, and that is, where does the Congress find its authority to enact uh, such a statute? Of course, the states exercising their general police power uh, can civilly commit dangerous people. But federal powers uh, are supposedly limited and enumerated, and they do not include a general police power. Comstock and others challenged their confinement on the ground that civil commitment exceeded Congress's enumerated powers. At the Cato Institute, we agreed, and we filed an amicus brief asking the Supreme Court to affirm. Uh, Regrettably, it was not to be. Uh, The government relied on the necessary and proper clause. That is, quoting from the Constitution, Congress's power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution its other enumerated powers. Now, as that text suggests, the necessary and proper clause must be tied to an enumerated power. So which of Congress's 17 other enumerated powers was carried into execution? According to Justice Breyer, Uh, It was Congress's implied power, not enumerated, but implied power, to punish and imprison. Dissenting Justices Thomas and Scalia reminded the court that an implied power to imprison persons for some enumerated crimes, for example, treason, cannot be extended to a power of civil commitment for sexual predation. Essentially, the court transformed the necessary and proper clause into a federal police power, and no wonder that clause has become known as the elastic clause. And Ilya S- uh, Soman will explore the implications of the Comstock uh, decision. So with that brief intro, we're going to let our speakers weigh in. Alan Gurr is going to speak first. He'll talk about the McDonald case. Uh, then we'll turn to Harvey Silverglate, who will discuss selling, uh, skilling and Ilya Soman. Our third speaker will cover Comstock. Each speaker will have about 15 minutes, and after that, we'll reserve a few minutes in case any of the speakers have comments or questions uh, for the other speakers, and then we'll open the floor up uh, for questions. I'm going to introduce Alan now and uh, Harvey and Ilya just before they speak. Uh, Alan Gurr is a D.C. area constitutional attorney at Gurr and Pozeski. He graduated with Distinction from Cornell and the Georgetown University Law Center, clerked for U.S. District Judge Terrence Boyle in North Carolina, and then served as California's uh, Deputy Attorney General. Uh, Later, he joined the D.C. office of Sidley and Austin, and before starting his own firm, he served for a year as counsel to a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee. In 2009, Allen was named one of Washington's top lawyers below the age of 40, and named a champion of justice by the Legal Times. In late 2002, Allen and I, uh, together with Clark Neely from the Institute for Justice, who's here with us today, embarked on a six-year litigation that culminated in June 2008 with a Supreme Court victory uh, in Heller, overturning Washington, uh, D.C.'s 32-year gunman. Allen argued that case uh, brilliantly and went on to argue this past term in McDonald, uh, his second historic Supreme Court win, which he'll be discussing today. Please join me in welcoming Alan Gurr.
1: Thank you, Bob, and thanks for uh, being here, everybody. <clears throat> I want to start by thanking my co-authors, Eli Shapiro and uh, Josh Blackman, without whom this article would... Uh, not have been possible, much less any good. If there's anything in this article that you like, it's uh, their fault. Uh, I will take all the uh, uh, complaints later at the reception. Uh, I also wish to thank uh, and acknowledge uh, Chip Miller of the Institute for Justice. Uh, It is fair to say that uh, without Chip's uh, mentorship of me when I was a student uh, clerking at IJ, this case would not have been litigated the same way. It may not have even occurred. Uh, Chip Miller, I think, has done more to advance uh, the cause of liberty than probably most uh, people have uh, in this town. And uh, this case, whatever it might have achieved, is, a, is definitely a credit to him and his leadership of the Institute for Justice. Uh, having said that, if anybody is interested in learning more about the case, uh, please visit chicagoguncase.com where you will see uh, that there is a uh, brief library Uh, in PDF format where you can read our brief, the city's brief, all the various amicus briefs are there for your reading pleasure. It is a comprehensive source of uh, learning more about the issues in the McDonald case. Uh, Now I must give you a caveat. Uh, Those of you who are expecting a Second Amendment lecture today, you want to learn more about what kind of gun laws are are going to survive and which kind of gun laws are going to fail, uh, you will be disappointed. Please tune in some other time. McDonald is really all about the 14th Amendment and how rights are transmitted against Uh, state and local governments. Uh, We really learned very little about the content of the Second Amendment in McDonald. I'll just give you a very brief summation, and then go on to the meat of the case. The first thing we learned, of course, there were five justices who told us that the Second Amendment secures a fundamental right. And with fundamental uh, right language, of course, under the familiar rubric of the Supreme Court, uh, we are going to get strict scrutiny for the Second Amendment. A lot of people are in denial about that. Uh, They don't like it. They can't believe it. Uh, Too bad. The Supreme Court has ruled, and I'm sure that when the case uh, returns before the Supreme Court on a standard of scrutiny, if if, uh, McDonald is faithfully applied, that's what we're going to get. We also got some other language about the limits of the right itself. Not a whole lot, but uh, the plurality noted that the right to possess a gun for self-defense in the home is uh, only most notably, that's the language, most notably the object of the Second Amendment. It is not the exclusive focus of it. And there's plenty of language in Heller and McDonald uh, for the proposition that gun rights do apply outside the home and in other contexts. Uh, Watch for more cases on that coming soon as well. Um, Again, the other side likes to think about Heller and McDonald as limiting the Second Amendment to the right to have a gun in your home for self-defense because that's the literal, actual facts of, of those cases. Uh, that's kind of like saying that Marbury versus Madison was about the delivery of judicial commissions. Uh, I don't think that that's what the what the holding uh, would be limited to. So, uh, with that, let's go back to uh, the object at hand, which is the Fourteenth Amendment and how it operates today and in the future. In D.C. versus Heller, the Supreme Court, of course, defined the Second Amendment as securing a meaningful individual right, and very few people believed that the Supreme Court went to all the trouble of the Heller case just to guarantee the rights of people here in River City. Uh, the, uh, the fact is that uh, it was well known and understood that Chicago, most likely, uh, uh, as a city having a nearly identical handgun ban, would be the immediate next step test case to see whether or not the Second Amendment right uh, would be applied to, um, uh, to states and their units of local government through the 14th Amendment. In fact, the Supreme Court practically invited the case uh, in Heller, uh, in uh, footnote 23 where they uh, suggested uh, with uh, more than a, a nudge and a wink that previous Supreme Court precedents uh, that refused or declined to uh, apply Second Amendment rights to local governments uh, were in fact obsolete and used uh, outmoded theories of constitutional interpretation that were no longer valid. Um, taking that hint, of course, I immediately uh, filed the case that uh, became McDonald v. City of Chicago, and uh, off we went. Now, why was this necessary? To recap, when the Bill of Rights was first ratified in 1791, uh, it really only applied to the federal government. It did not bind uh, the states and, and state officials. This was viewed as a defect in the original Constitution by many people, but nonetheless, uh, the Supreme Court followed this, uh, this rule in uh, the landmark case of Barron versus City of Baltimore in the 1830s. And so uh, the, the rule was, uh, if uh, you believed you had a First Amendment right or a Second Amendment right, uh, you sure did. You had those against the federal government, but your state and local officials could do what they want. That arrangement uh, was not a happy one, and in, in particular it caused problems given the, na- the nation's debate over uh, the issue of slavery. Uh, abolitionists were targeted throughout the southern states. Um, Because the slave power understood that in order for slavery to survive, they needed to not only oppress the the slaves, who obviously had all of their rights denied, but they also needed to deprive free people of the rights, namely the right to speak against slavery, because uh, if if only uh, people could... Uh, could protest it and express themselves and try to uh, encourage civil disobedience and other modes of political expression, the institution would likely uh, not survive. And so we saw southern states engage in a campaign of repression against uh, free blacks and whites, abolitionists. Southern states would ban books. They would place bounties on the heads of of, uh, visiting northerners. They would search the mails looking for sermons to burn. They would arrest uh, free blacks who would sail into a, a southern port, perhaps, and on and on and on. And these abuses were uh, controversial, to say the least. And so it was not a surprise that when the um, Civil War finally occurred and ended, it was not just slavery that needed to end, but it was also uh, there was also a pressing need to make sure that state governments respected the basic civil rights of all Americans. It was not enough to simply say, that there would be no more slavery. The 13th Amendment accomplished that. But uh, the bad old behavior of the Southern states quickly reared its head. And so um, uh, we did see a campaign of repression even after 1865. uh, Southern states refused to acknowledge the the basic civil rights of, of the freedmen and their supporters. And so the 14th Amendment was necessary to say, not only are there no slaves in America, but actually everyone who's born here Uh, and subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, is a citizen of the United States. And that citizenship has meaning. It's not an empty word. It's not just a piece of paper. uh, Citizens have certain rights. And specifically, the very first thing that citizens are entitled to uh, is this. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. That is the so-called privileges or immunities clause, and its language uh, is crystal clear. It was very well understood at the time by everyone uh, who debated and thought about the, the 14th Amendment, by the 14th Amendment's proponents. Uh, it was understood to, to convey the, the, the obvious meaning of, of that text. The words privileges or immunities throughout American history had come to refer to basic civil rights, including, but not exclusively, those rights that were secured in the first uh, eight amendments to the United States Constitution. And so uh, henceforth, as a matter of constitutional text, people would have their civil rights protected against state and local authorities. End of story. A lot of people don't like that. Uh, That's too bad. That language is in the Constitution, and it is, in fact, in force. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court had a different vision for the 14th Amendment. And in the very first case that came up before the Supreme Court uh, asserting Uh, a violation of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Supreme Court read that clause uh, into nothingness and basically eradicated uh, the clause. And so in the uh, infamous Slaughterhouse Cases, the very definition of an activist opinion, if there ever is such a thing, uh, if activism means the court ignoring the clear text of the Constitution, making stuff up, inventing nonsense, then Exhibit A, as everyone uh, today understands, would be the slaughterhouse cases. And in the slaughterhouse cases, the Supreme Court said, look, uh, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States uh, are only those rights that you have that come out of the existence of the United States government itself, which means that you have the right to um, get a passport. You have the right to the Navy's protection on the high seas. Uh, You have the right to visit uh, the Treasury. You can go take a tour of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing here on 14th Street. Uh, and that's about it. But when it comes to basic fundamental rights, such as the ones secured in the Bill of Rights uh, or other rights that have been traditionally understood to, to be a, 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 an inherent part of, of the condition of liberty, well, those rights are state rights. And you have to look to the states for the protection of those rights. And so, as we found out in the slaughterhouse cases, uh, the states could erect monopolies, bar you from, uh, from uh, common uh, professions and livelihoods. Uh, shortly thereafter, in the Krugshank case, Uh, The states could deprive you of your First Amendment rights and of your Second Amendment rights, and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, uh, the 14th Amendment was effectively uh, a nullity. Uh, Now, nobody seriously believed, even at the time, that the Civil War and the very contentious debate over the 14th Amendment had anything to do with the right to visit the post office or the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. Uh, We did not have, as one commentator noted, uh, the state of Arkansas sending its Navy to sink uh, uh, black people on the high seas. Uh, that is not what what the debate was about. Uh, yet this, uh, uh, yet some people who acknowledged the error of slaughterhouse were quite enthusiastic about it. Uh, the uh, the old Confederates uh, wrote quite brazenly that this was a a great thing that the Supreme Court had stood up to and resisted the will of the people as expressed in the Constitution because. Uh, in their view, the 14th Amendment was irresponsible, people got a little bit carried away with this whole liberty concept, and it was good that the Supreme Court stepped in and made up some rules uh, to restore uh, uh, the proper order of things as, as the losers of the Civil War sought. Um, now, of course, history did not unfold smoothly after that. Slaughterhouse and its progeny sanctioned uh, Jim Crow and, and uh, the end of Reconstruction, uh, but the Supreme Court eventually came to recognize that something had to be done to, to restrain the states and allow some civil rights to be protected. And so towards the end of the, um, of the 19th century, the Supreme Court embarked upon a program of holding case by case, right by right, that some rights are secured against state uh, infringement, not by the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but under the Due Process Clause, the clause that tells you that uh, states must afford you due process Uh, Before they deprive you of life, liberty, or property. And that uh, the idea is that due process has certain substantive components. That is, uh, because you're entitled to due process of law, uh, the law cannot reach into certain areas uh, that are impermissible. Now, this concept is actually uh, an old concept, it's not completely made up, it goes back to the Magna Carta. Um, and, and other uh, uh, legal concepts, but it was not within the popular understanding of the people who ratified the Fourteenth Amendment. And there's not a single shred of evidence to believe that, uh, that when people read the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, they said, "Aha! This is where the um, this is where the uh, this is where the right is located." And so uh, we had to litigate actually um, uh, both clauses. Uh, in the McDonald case, uh, we had to litigate both due process and privileges and immunities for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, conservatives had uh, long made fun of the idea of substantive due process. Justice Scalia had called it an atrocity, a usurpation. Anyone who believed, approaching McDonald, that there were five votes among the heller five for uh, substantive due process incorporation. Um, uh, was was in was was in fantasy land, and in fact, as we discovered in the end, there were not five votes for due process uh, incorporation because we, in the end, could only get four. And even among the four uh, uh, votes, it was very clear in the text of the plurality, as we discuss in this um, in this uh, wonderful law review article. It's very clear that the existence of an originalist, uh, meaningful historical uh, basis for the for the incorporating result is what motivated. The, even the four in the plurality to go ahead and come up with this result. They did not, I don't think, come to their conclusion because they were uh, pro gun and wanted to look for a way to do that. I think that they understood that there was an historical basis rooted in the privileges or immunities clause, even if they weren't willing to, um, uh, to accept it uh, literally, uh, which justified the result. And so the due process precedents uh, were used uh, to achieve that effect. Um, had we not uh, made a forceful argument for the Privileges or Remedios Clause, the case would not have been won, not just because we could probably not have done as good a job of persuading the plurality uh, that there was an historical um, reason for, for going down this road, but also because it's, it's unclear that Justice Thomas would have, uh, would have adopted the Privileges or Remedios Clause in his separate opinion, absent some uh, substantial argument. In fact, there was evidence for that, um, in the uh, partial birth abortion case, uh, Carhart versus Gonzalez, a number of years ago, uh, there was an argument made on behalf of the uh, of the abortion doctors that um, uh, that uh, there was this right to, to have an abortion a right of reproductive choice. clearly that that argument was not going to be persuasive to some of the conservative members of the court, and in the end, the doctors lost five four but uh, in a separate concurrence, Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Scalia, noted that what a shame it was nobody presented them with uh, an argument under the Commerce Clause, an argument that the federal government actually had no right to regulate abortion in the first place, never mind uh, whether or not there was a, an actual right to uh, to get a partial birth abortion. And so uh, the suggestion quite strongly was that only, had, had only someone done this, then perhaps the case would have gone uh, very much in the other direction. We also, of course, were able to... Um, uh, to get the support of a lot of non-traditional allies. Although we did not get any of the four uh, so-called liberal progressive justices to vote our way, we certainly got everyone from uh, uh, notable liberal scholars like uh, Jack Balkin and Adam Winkler to the New York Times editorial page uh, that, that came out and supported us. And so we were able to build quite a coalition uh, for this. Um, uh, by the way, anybody who claims that somehow we did not argue due process or that this was not a part of our case, is simply either um, uh, not reading the documents or does not understand them or is uh, not telling the truth. Uh, we argued both, however, in a case like this, of course, it, it does not make sense to dwell on something which is uh, extremely well understood and uh, uh, an area where the justices all come to the case with very profound and strong opinions, whatever they might be. So all we really need to do is preserve the argument. We made it uh, correctly and forcefully. Uh, but the uh, the value added of the briefing uh, had to be focused on the originalist historical basis because that is what is interesting to this court. Uh, even in Heller, all nine justices, whatever they believed about the Second Amendment, were very clearly focused on the history and the original meaning, uh, either as original intent or original public meaning of the uh, of the Second Amendment. And it would have been quite foolish to ignore uh, the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment and the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, is quite clear. It's all about the privileges or immunities clause. Uh, so, um, uh, looking forward to the future, we now have finally uh, a situation where, for the first time in uh, uh, ever, really, the privileges and immunities clause, as originally understood, was consequential, and it actually is uh, a part of our constitution. Justice Thomas's opinion was necessary for the decision, and uh, it gives us a lot of room to uh, uh, to work with. I look forward to the future of uh, the litigation of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, I believe it does have a very bright future ahead of it. Oftentimes in the law, we see opinions that start out as one justice or two justice concurrences, uh, and uh, over time they uh, they do evolve and grow and eventually command a majority. Uh, we've cited a number of those uh, types of cases in our in our. Um, uh, article, and I do uh, look forward to the day that McDonald's can be cited as another example of that. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Alan. Next, we're going to have Harvey Silverglade on the uh, Enron case. Harvey is an adjunct scholar at Cato. He graduated from Princeton, cum laude, and the Harvard Law School, where he also taught. Um, he's now counsel at Boston Zalkind, Rodriguez, Lunt, and Duncan, where he specializes in criminal defense, civil liberties, uh, academic freedom, and student rights. He's a longtime ACLU uh, member and a board member of the Massachusetts affiliate of the ACLU. Harvey was a civil liberties columnist for the National Law Journal uh, and writes as well for Forbes.com. Uh, His articles have appeared in the Harvard Law Review, uh, the New York Times. Book review, The Wall Street Journal, and publications uh, just too numerous to mention. In 1998, Harvey and Alan uh, Coors co-authored *The Shadow University: The Betrayal of Liberty on America's Campuses*. He and Alan also co-founded FIRE, F-I-R-E, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a terrific uh, organization uh, which I urge you to support, uh, dedicated to academic freedom, due process, free speech uh, on college campuses. Uh, in 2009, Harvey published his most recent book, Three Felonies a Day, uh, How the Feds Target the Innocent. Please extend a warm welcome to Harvey Silverglade.
2: Uh, my sincere thanks uh, go to the Cato Institute, a uh, reliable and consistent friend of liberty, for providing me this opportunity to set out in the current issue of the uh, Cato Supreme Court review, uh, my views about the problem of vagueness in federal criminal law uh, addressed by the Supreme Court this past term in in skilling uh, versus United States and more generally the problems encountered by people in all professions and all walks of life by the Congress's increasingly frequent enactment of criminal statutes that ordinary citizens, even lawyers, uh, cannot really understand. That the Department of Justice prosecutes citizens for violating such statutes, and the courts respond with deference, is one of the signature civil liberties issues of our time. And yet very few people understand the degree of destruction It wreaked upon liberty and upon the lives of real human beings, our fellow citizens, and even occasionally us, uh, by this phenomenon. I recognized it for the first time in the mid-1980s in my criminal defense uh, law practice in Boston, and it got worse and worse, and as it got worse and worse and more and more dangerous, I started to keep notes. The result was my 2009 book, The Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent, as well as a related chapter that I contributed to Tim Lynch's Cato-published book in the name of justice, also published in 2009. And now I've had the opportunity with my co-author Monica Shaw To bring these observations and experiences to bear in trying to understand the federal deprivation of honest services statute and its application in three cases actually decided together in the last term a skilling a black and weiroush Uh, when the high court granted certiorari in all three cases it was assumed that a major pronouncement was in store the pronouncement, it turned out, was less than major, albeit it was somewhat more than a mere whimper. In Skilling, the court declared as unconstitutionally vague the amended federal mail fraud statute under which the Department of Justice charged at Skilling, a longtime officer of the now defunct and infamous Emron Corporation, sought to, quote, deprive Emron and its shareholders of the intangible right of his honest services, close quote. The majority concluded that the deprivation of honest services was in itself a phrase so boundless that it violated the Fifth Amendment due process clause which requires that a criminal statute be sufficiently clear so that a person of common understanding recognizes what is expected of him and what conduct is prohibited. The court was clearly right in throwing out Skillian's conviction. Just think about what this country would be if federal prosecutors could indict you, convict you, and put you in prison because you performed the services that you owed to someone in a dishonest manner. The concept of honesty is, of course, in the eye of the beholder. It's rather like a criminal statute that would prohibit being bad. A five-year-old likely understands, or at least learns, eventually, what his, or, his or, or her parents mean when the child is punished for being bad. But the relationship between government and citizen and the expectations and demands by the government uh, as to how the citizen will behave, where the former has the power to imprison the latter for life, must be somewhat more formal, more clearly specified. The instructions by the government are more complex, usually less intuitive than those of the parent to the child, and the consequences of misjudgment by the citizen are infinitely more severe. After all, children know, even after being admonished, that the parent really loves them and has ultimately benign intentions. The citizen, alas, has no such realistic expectations, (laughs) as many of my clients have learned at great personal cost. Now, I've been talking here about the problem of vagueness in federal criminal statutes uh, in rather simple and unscholarly terms. These are the terms that make sense to me and to most of my clients. I've been writing about my legal practice experiences Virtually since the day I began to try criminal and civil liberties cases in 1967, and I normally approach legal conundrums from the vantage point of the practitioner rather than the scholar. If the truth be known, the notion that criminal statutes must give adequate notice of what the government expects and where the line is drawn is not essentially a scholarly concept, not essentially a legal one. It's hardly esoteric. It is, to a substantial degree, common sense. You tell me what you want me to do or not do, the citizen tells the government. And you can punish me for disobedience only if your instructions were comprehensible. You don't need a law degree to understand this concept. In skilling the High Court thought thought it solved the problem by rewriting the honest services statute. It's true, admitted the majority, that no one really can say what deprivation of honest services encompasses. But rather than throw out the statute entirely, the majority proceeded to do what we are told courts are not supposed to do, it rewrote the statute. Henceforth proclaimed Justice Ginsburg for the majority, deprivation of honest services will cover only schemes that involve bribery and kickbacks. Surely we all know what that covers. This is legislative redrafting and it's not a court's role, Justice Scalia wrote in his concurring opinion, concurring, of course, because he agreed with the result, though not the reasoning of the majority's reversal of Skilling's honest services conviction. Scalia concluded that the statute, even as rewritten by the majority, still failed to answer the fundamental underlying question as to what the statute means and prohibits. And it failed to deal with, quote, the character of the fiduciary capacity to which the bribery and kickback restriction applies, close quote. In other words, Justice Scalia was asking, what is the nature of the relationship between the defendant and his victimized party that will trigger the honest services duty? And how does this play out in real life? How is this duty played out in the corporate world? or in public affairs. The bottom line, intoned Justice Scalia for himself and Justices Thomas and Kennedy, is that we still don't know how much much about what the narrowed, improved, honest services statute outlaws. In particular, we don't know much about the intersection of the newly narrowed honest services statute and state criminal laws which purport to define these relationships in considerable more detail and with a quite lengthy history of interpretation and enforcement. And here it is, I think, that Justice Scalia touches upon the most dangerous and destructive aspect of the federal deprivation of honest services doctrine, even as newly narrowed or rewritten as Justice Scalia would have it. It remains unlikely that, for example, a citizen engaging in conduct that appears to be lawful under state law in his geographic jurisdiction is protected against a Federal Honest Services prosecution. It is unlikely that a political figure towing the line under state and municipal ethics laws is thereby immune to a Federal Honest Services prosecution. Let me give you a quite current example. United States Attorney Patrick Fitzgerald in Chicago announced the indictment of Rod Blagojevich in a press conference held shortly after the unseemly early morning arrest of what was at the time a sitting governor. Representatives of the major news media flocked around the prosecutor and seemed to lap up without the slightest critical examination of what he was dishing out. Fitzgerald explained to the gathered reporters that he and his team saw fit to make the arrest prior to what would have been the sensational culmination of the alleged conspiracy of Blagojevich to, quote, sell, close quote, the Senate seat recently vacated by Barack Obama when the latter won the presidency. That charge was based on snippets of eavesdrop and wiretap tapes in which the governor was trying to figure out to whom the seat should go so as to result at least in part on some political advantage to the governor himself. Unseemly, perhaps, but not an unusual thinking process for politicians by pulling the plug prematurely, prosecutors were left with the easiest possible case to prove, that of a conspiracy to sell the Senate seat, rather than with an accomplished act that quite possibly would never have occurred, or, if it did occur in some format, uh, would not amount to a hill of beans to a normal Chicago jury. (laughs) But Fitzgerald had a different explanation. He told the assembled reporters that he had to pull the plug on the investigation, not only to prevent the evil of the sale of the Senate seat, but also because at the time Blagojevich and his cronies had ratcheted up their crime spree, hitting up everyone in sight for campaign funds at an increasingly frenzied pace. They were, Fitzgerald said, in the middle of a, quote, political corruption crime spree, close quote. Why did the pace of their fundraising increase just at that time? Well, explained the prosecutor to his lapdog press corps, eagerly waiting to be enlightened, the Illinois legislature had enacted new and more stringent ethics legislation that was scheduled to take effect on January 1st, and Blago and his cronies were in a frenzied attempt to wring every last dime out of prospective donors before the state, law curtailed such rampant practices. In other words, if you take a step back, which none of the reporters did in so far as I could see, you realize that the Blago team's frenzied end of year fundraising was evidence not of criminal intent, but rather was evidence of their effort to conform to state law that would soon be changing. The frenzied money-raising was thus evidence of a lawful state of mind and intentions. But, of course, the fact that the governor and his people were trying hard to conform their conduct to state law did not, in Fitzgerald's eyes, absolve them of federal criminal culpability. Adhering to state law was meaningless if the United States attorney thought you were a crook and were depriving the good people of Illinois of the honest services that is their due. And this, in fact, is indicative of one of the major problems that public officials and private citizens encounter when they face charges not only of deprivation of honest services, but any species of federal mail fraud, wire fraud, or any other of the myriad federal fraud categories. How and why should it be that activities that are lawful under state law can be the basis for a federal felony charge? Why is it that, for example, public officials who carefully conform their conduct to state and local law as well as state and local political culture might still find themselves facing a decade or two in the federal penitentiary? If you're interested in how these absurd, but all too common situations play out in real life, read chapter one of my book, Three Felonies, about the prosecution of Hialeah Florida Mayor Raul Martinez for for engaging in real estate transactions that were fully in accord with state and local law and culture. He, like almost every other local politician in the area, practiced his profession while serving at a rather modest salary in his elected public office. And because his being mayor ended up advantaging his professional real estate development uh, activities, uh, business activities, he he was deemed a federal felon. What was his crime? Well, local businessmen wanted to do business with him because he was a popular politician with a sterling future. All the real estate transactions in which he engaged were in accord with state and local law. All were disclosed, and he declared them and paid income taxes on the profits. A state investigation had found nothing in the way of bribery or extortion to pin on the mayor, and yet he was indicted federally by the Office of the United States Attorney, who, by the way, was the husband of the woman who sought to challenge Martinez for an upcoming vacancy, vacancy in the district's congressional seat. If you don't believe me, look it up. Such are the possibilities when there are statutes on the federal books as vague and formless and dangerous as the deprivation of honest services provision, and in fact, a myriad of other federal anti-fraud statutes that survive the Skilling opinion. They are a trap for the unwary. The court's narrowing of the deprivation of honest services portion of the federal anti-fraud statute is helpful, but it is effective only around the edges, the heart of the vagueness problem is still with us. One need only recall the words of the infamous KGB head under the Stalin regime in the old Soviet Union, Lavrenti Beria, who, able to use the myriad formless provisions in the Soviet Criminal Code, boasted, show me the man and I'll find you the crime. <laughs> Even after the Skilling case, it remains all too easy in our nation, this great land of liberty, for an ambitious or hostile prosecutor for whatever reason, to find your crime and, worse, mine.
0: Thank you, Harvey. And now Ilya Soman on the uh, Comstock case. Ilya is the associate professor um, at my illustrious alma mater, the George Mason Law School. (laughs) He was also a uh, visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as at law schools in both uh, Germany and Argentina. Ilya focuses on constitutional law, property, and the study of uh, popular political participation. He's co-editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review. His work has appeared in the uh, Law Journal, the Stanford Law Review, the Georgetown Law uh, Journal, and popular outlets as well, such as the LA Times- Legal Times, National Law Journal, and Reason Magazine. Ilya testified at Sonia Sotomayor's uh, confirmation hearings. He writes regularly for the widely read blog, The uh, Volick Conspiracy. Before joining the George Mason faculty, he was John M. Olin Fellow at Northwestern Law School and clerked for Fifth Circuit Appellate Judge Jerry Smith. Ilya earned his bachelor's summa cum laude at Amherst, his master's in political science from Harvard, his JD from Yale. Three uh, transgressions for which we hereby grant him absolution. Um, please welcome uh, Yulia Solomon.
3: I. Uh, I'd like to thank Cato for organizing this event and for particularly giving me an opportunity to be on a panel that involves guns, sex, and corruption. Uh, I don't often have that chance uh, and uh, it falls to me to do the sex part of our program although sadly there won't be all that much material of actual prurient interest. Uh, However, I will attempt to entertain the audience as best as I can uh, to the extent possible. Uh, So I'm going to be focusing today on the Supreme Court's decision in United States versus Comstock, which as Bob has pointed out, deals with the interpretation of the necessary and proper clause. Debates about the meaning of the necessary and proper clause uh, go back over 200 years uh, in American history, but in more recent years very few Supreme Court decisions have actually turned on the necessary and proper clause, in part because the court has interpreted Congress's other powers, so broadly uh, that usually there was no need to resort to a necessary and proper clause to try to rationalize what the federal government was trying to do. However, in recent years, particularly with the litigation over the Obama health care plan and some other federal statutes, the Necessary and Proper Clause has again become a focus of debate, uh, and that lends the decision in Comstock uh, some important significance that perhaps it might not otherwise have had. Uh, As Bob says, the Necessary and Proper Clause gives Congress the power to, quote, make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States. In other words, in plain English, or at least plainer English, uh, what the clause means is that it's not a freestanding independent grant of power, rather it's a grant of power to do things which execute or implement other powers granted to Congress somewhere else in the Constitution. Uh, And in Comstock, uh, the case at issue was section 4248 of the Adam Walsh Act, uh, a recent piece of legislation passed to try to combat sexual predators. And what section 4248 said is that when you have federal prisoners who have already completed their sentences for whatever crimes they might have committed, the federal government can continue to detain them even after they've completed their sentences If it can show that they're, quote, sexually dangerous persons, and even if, by the way, their original crime had nothing to do with sex in any way, shape, or form, uh, and indeed there are actually very few uh, persons convicted of sex crimes that are actually in federal prison because most sex crimes uh, are exclusively based on state law. uh, And so, in my presentation, I'll start off by briefly summarizing the case and the Supreme Court's reasoning, uh, and then I will go on to criticize what I think are some serious flaws in that reasoning. And finally, I'll briefly consider the implications of Comstock uh, for future litigation, especially for the healthcare litigation, which is now currently ongoing. Uh, I have to confess right away, however, that the more I read the Supreme Court's decision in Comstock, the less I feel like I understand it. So perhaps the best that I can do is to try to explain to you why I'm confused, uh, and also why this decision might also turn out to be confusing for lower courts. Uh, I think in any Supreme Court decision, one of the things that the court is supposed to do is provide some guidance to lower courts as to how they're supposed to decide future cases. Uh, In this case, whether you agree with the outcome or not, I think the Supreme Court signally failed to do that failed to carry out what I think is perhaps its primary responsibility. Uh, So, uh, as I said before, Section 4248 uh, gives Congress, uh, or rather gives the federal authorities the power to continue to detain prisoners who have already completed their sentences if they can show that they're somehow sexually dangerous. Uh, And Mr. Comstock and four other individuals were among the prisoners that the federal government sought to detain under Section 4248. And they argued that this act uh, was, in fact, beyond Congress's powers under Article 1 of the Constitution, Uh, this was the only argument that really they could put forward because the Supreme Court had already ruled in previous cases that this sort of detention is permissible so far as the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause uh, is concerned. Uh, now the Court of Appeals actually ruled in favor of the detained individuals and struck down the law, but the Supreme Court reversed in a seven to two vote. Now it's noteworthy that the Supreme Court's decision is based solely under the Necessary and Proper Clause, despite the fact that recent Supreme Court decisions under the Commerce Clause interpreted the Commerce Clause broadly enough, uh, that perhaps you could fit it in under, uh, that grant of power to Congress. Perhaps they did that because Solicitor General, then Solicitor General Elena Kagan uh made an interesting strategic decision in her brief to the court and decided to focus solely on the necessary and proper clause, even though when the case was litigated the lower courts uh the government had actually relied on the commerce clause as well. Uh so the court argued in its central point in their reasoning was that this sort of detention is permissible because it stems from, quote, Congress's power to act as a custodian uh, of the federal penal system and to give federal authorities uh, the power to carry out these custodial responsibilities. They also said that necessary and proper clause cases should be uh, analyzed under the so-called rational basis test. That is, if something that is done under the necessary and proper clause is somehow, quote, rationally related to one of Congress's other federal powers, uh, then it's permissible and constitutional. Now, as those of you who are lawyers now, who are lawyers know, uh, when the Supreme Court uses the words rational basis, they don't mean what normal people mean when they say rational. That is something that has some actual reasonable justification. Rather, they mean something like that it's rational in the sense that it's an argument that a person who's not completely moronic and stupid could potentially believe in some way. So, so far, under this part of the opinion, it looks like uh, the uh, argument is that the necessary Proper clause is nearly a blank check to Congress to do whatever uh, they might think might be reasonable to do. Uh, however, the court then goes on to the part which uh, at least makes me confused and perhaps other people as well, and they say there are actually five factors which determine the outcome in this case, all five of which uh, supported the uh, uh, the government. One is the breadth of the necessary and proper clause. Second, the long history of federal involvement in this area. Third, the sound reasons for the government's policy. And fourth, the fact that the statute accommodates state. Interest. That is, according to the court, Section 4248 actually allows the states uh, to uh, prevent federal detention of these prisoners if they wanted to do so. And finally, the narrow scope of Section 4248 was the fifth factor. Now, this five-factor test immediately raises some questions. One is, what happens in a case where not all these factors cut the same way? If three support the government and two support uh, the person challenging the law, uh, what will the decision be? Uh, uh, Also, uh, how important are these factors relative to each other? Maybe they're all equally important. Maybe one of them is more important than the others. And finally, what is the relationship between the five-factor test and the rational basis standard uh, that I pointed to earlier? All of these questions, as just as Thomas points out in his dissent, go completely unanswered. In the majority opinion, does you can see why I feel confused. We don't really know what this five-factor test actually means uh, and what implications it has uh, for future cases. Uh, Now, it's also worth noting uh, that although the decision was seven to two. In terms of the reasoning the majority offered, it was really only five to four because both Justice Kennedy and Justice Salito wrote concurring opinions where they expressed support for a decision only on very narrow grounds. Justice Kennedy actually specifically criticized the court's reliance on the rational basis test. Uh, it's also finally worth noting that Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia dissented, Scalia joining Thomas's dissent, uh, arguing that the majority was completely wrong, uh, and this is worth noting because this may be a step back from the broad view of the necessary and proper clause that Scalia expressed in the Raich case five years ago. So I'd like to go on next to briefly describe what are some of the weaknesses of the majority opinion why I think it was ultimately wrong. One of them I've already pointed to, it's extreme vagueness uh, and the difficulty of figuring out what it actually means. Uh, but in addition, uh, I think the, the big problem uh, with the opinion is one that was pointed out by Justice Thomas in his dissent, namely that there's no actual connection here to any enumerated power and you have to have one uh, to to uphold something under the necessary and proper clause. The court did try to connect this to Congress's power to operate a penal system. However, the power to operate a penal system is not, in fact, itself one of Congress's enumerated powers. Rather, Congress has that authority only in so far as it is useful in implementing or executing one of its other powers. So presumably, whatever power rationalizes the law for uh, people are imprisoned if they violate that law. The problem in this case, of course, is that these individuals have already served whatever time they accrued for violating the initially presumably constitutional uh, federal criminal law. So you can't connect it up to whatever law or whatever power justified uh, their imprisonment in the first place. Uh, And this is something that the Supreme Court majority opinion never really uh, successfully confronts. Uh, that uh, they do try to argue that uh, if the power to create a penal system is connected to enumerated powers uh, and Section 4248 is connected to the power to create a penal system, then you have a sufficiently good chain of reasoning. The problem, though, is that even if Section 4248 is connected to operating a penal system, it's not connected in a way that actually helps enforce uh, Congress's other enumerated powers. Indeed, it actually probably impedes their enforcement because, of course, when you detain people under Section 4248, uh, you use up federal resources, time and money and so on, and those resources could instead have been used to monitor and incarcerate people who have actually violated laws uh, that actually enforce one of Congress's enumerated powers. Uh, so, uh, therefore, the reasoning here is unpersuasive. Uh, now, I also suggest uh, in my article that a second major weakness uh, in the court's reasoning uh, is that uh, the it renders many of the rest of Congress's enumerated powers redundant. Uh, so for instance, if anything that is in some way remotely connected to one of Congress's enumerated powers can then be justified, uh, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, even if it does not actually uh, advance the enforcement of that enumerated power, uh, then we don't really need the list of 17 other powers. We just need one power, such as the commerce clause, uh, and then anything which in some way is remotely connected to commerce uh, would be sufficient. The court also tries to rationalize its decisions based on precedent. Uh, I'm not going to go into that in detail here, but I think suffice to say that none of the precedents they cite are actually uh, even close to being similar to this case. Lastly, in my final couple of minutes, I'd like to briefly talk about the implications of this case uh, for future cases, Uh, particularly the healthcare litigation, which is currently ongoing, where some 22 states and a number of private organizations have challenged the constitutionality of the healthcare legislation, especially the so-called individual mandate, uh, which says that most, if not all Americans, must purchase health insurance, private health insurance by 2014. Uh, Now, the government has already cited the Comstock case in its briefs in in this litigation to try to suggest that The the Comstock shows that their position is justified under a necessary and proper clause, and that may turn out to be the case, but there's a potential problem, and that is the five-part test. Uh, I would argue that at least three out of the five points in the five-part test uh, are ones that the uh, individual mandate does not actually meet. So first, uh, the long history of federal involvement, there is not actually a previous federal statute that requires people to buy uh, some kind of commercial good that they don't want to have. Secondly, there is no accommodation of state interests similar to in Section 4248. There is no way that states can opt out out of the individual mandate. And third, whatever else you can say about the individual mandate, it's not narrow in scope. To the contrary, it compels millions of people uh, to purchase products that they may not want throughout the United States. In addition, Comstock does not address an important part of the necessary and proper clause that will be at issue in the health care litigation. And that is the definition of the word proper. It's not enough that a statute is necessary to be upheld in the clause. It must be proper as well. And there's a strong case that the individual mandate is not proper because of the way it it, uh, undermines the structure of the federal system. Uh, I would also add that uh, it's not at all clear that the coalition of five justices that joined the majority opinion in Comstock uh, will actually hold in future cases. In particular it's interesting that Chief Justice Roberts was the only one of the five conservative justices who joined that group and I'm not sure that he will interpret this five part test in the same way that the four most liberal justices are likely to do so. So in conclusion uh, I think Comstock is a badly reasoned decision and also an extremely confusing one. Uh, and what it means for the future, only time will tell. Uh, the one, one certain thing is that we are going to see more litigation over this issue and that this is not the end of the debate over the meaning of the necessary and proper clause. Thank you.
0: Uh, thanks to all the members of our panel. Um, we've reserved some time for questions. Uh, please wait until the microphone is brought to you and then identify yourself by name and affiliation and tell us to whom your question is addressed. Please keep your questions short, no speeches, so we can accommodate as many questions as possible. And if we run short on time, uh, we may have to dispense with the answers. <laughs> Are there any questions? Yes, sir. In the orange shirt. Raise your hand so we can see you. There you go.
4: Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Uh, unaffiliated. This is uh, addressed to Mr. Gura uh, with respect to the privileges and immunities clause. That clause differs, differs, uh, in significant, to a significant degree from the the uh, due process and equal protection clauses, in that it protects only citizens and not persons. Uh, and the Bill of Rights protects persons and people. So the citizen is is specifically defined in the 14th Amendment as being limited to uh, either naturalized or or American-born citizens. So it would exclude corporations. It would exclude uh, any uh, non-citizen who is here either legally or, or illegally. And my question is, doesn't that suggest that the purpose of the Privilege and Immunities Clause is to protect rights that are peculiar to citizenship rather than the broader rights available to persons under the, the Bill of Rights and the other clauses of the, um, the 14th Amendment, which would suggest that maybe uh, uh, Justice Miller was correct in the in the uh, Slaughterhouse cases.
1: Um, interesting question. The answer to that is No. Uh, it, no, no nobody conceives of the so-called slaughterhouse rights as necessarily rights of citizenship. The right, you know, to be an American citizen does not mean the right to visit the U.S. Mint. Uh, they actually let foreigners in there as well. If you want to take the tour, and you're you're Canadian, they'll let you in. Uh, Ilya can go uh, visit. Um, but the, um,
3: <laughs>
1: the the Ilya Shapiro here. Sorry, yes. Uh, the The reality is that is that uh, the the uh, the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment told us in large degree what those rights were. Senator Jacob Howard, introducing the amendment on the floor of the uh, of the US Senate, uh, said that it was impossible to define the meaning of, of this term. It was very broad, but at the very least it included the provisions of the first eight amendments. John Bingham uh, spoke repeatedly about how the Bill of Rights would be applied through the Privilege or Remedies Clause. Uh, it was a phrase used uh, dozens of times in the speech introducing the 14th Amendment. Uh, uh, Akilah Mar has collected, gone through the Congressional record and noted uh, dozens upon dozens and dozens of references to the Bill of Rights uh, being made applicable to the states through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, There's no um, uh, evidence to suggest that uh, uh, anywhere that uh, the slaughterhouse majority's reasoning was known to anyone at the time of the ratification. Uh, uh, In fact, uh, the model for uh, privileges uh, or immunities, uh, that language was, was in some currency. There's been a lot of uh, uh, research done to show what those words meant to people, and everyone understood that those words included uh, the basic rights that would be secured in any free government. Uh, uh, specifically, the framers made a lot of references to the uh, case of Corfield versus Coriel, which gave an equally broad uh, definition of that phrase to the privileges uh, and immunities clause of Article Four, Section 2. Uh, uh, they were very careful to select that language because of that, and, and so it's, um, you know, the, the historical way of the evidence is uniform. Uh, now, as far as whether uh, uh, a privilege or immunities theory bars uh, um, Kate Azelia Shapiro from, from having a certain bill of rights protections, the answer is no, it does not. Not only is there no uh, original evidence for the idea that non-citizens would be excluded, Uh, The fact is that the other parts of the 14th Amendment, namely the Equal Protection Clause and Due Process Clause, uh, would suggest that uh, so long as the state needs to respect certain basic rights of citizens, it then cannot deprive other persons of the equal protection of the law, and the Supreme Court has held that alienage classifications are subject to strict scrutiny. Uh, There's also the problem of uh, the federal immigration power preempting Uh, State's abilities to make Laws directed at uh, at non-citizens Specifically so uh, Obviously there there was some concern that This theory would deprive non-citizens Of of their basic rights But uh, that's not the structure of the 14th Amendment Kurt
5: This is also directed at Alan Uh, Alan you do a very uh, Eloquent job of Explaining why uh, privileges and immunities is a sound or certainly more originalist uh, basis for incorporating the, the Bill of Rights, where I um, where I sometimes disagree with with people who make your case, and I'm not sure whether I heard you say it here. I, I think I've heard you said it before, and certainly a lot of fans of the Privileges and Immunity Clause seem to be saying that if we finally restore privileges and immunities, it will usher in a period of, of greater liberty. And that I have a hard time seeing just because... I think history has taught us that that the left is um you know has been more determined certainly more successful at using substantive due process and its cousins um to basically uh install their uh preferred liberties liberties which I think many libertarians and conservatives would not would consider to be created rather than intended by the founding fathers um i mean do you agree are you saying that that it will be not just? A philosophical victory, but a practical victory for liberty if privileges and immunities are are, install, are strengthened, and, you know, if so, why, given the, the previous history? I mean, clearly my fear is that the left will do with privileges and immunities what they've already done with substantive due process.
1: Well, it will be a practical victory for liberty. It will be a, a vast victory for liberty because the text of the Constitution, the way it was originally understood by the people who framed it, guarantees us a vast array of unenumerated rights that protect a broad range of conduct that goes well beyond the literal text of the first eight amendments. We forget sometimes the Ninth Amendment, for example, instructs specifically the, uh, uh, the notion that, that uh, the enumeration of some rights does not mean that others do not exist. And in fact, um, uh, the uh, privileges... Uh, and immunities clause of the fourth, uh, of, of article four, section two has been held to secure all kinds of economic rights and travel rights and things that are not specifically listed in the Constitution. And likewise, if we apply the original meaning of of that text as it was understood by the framers, we should be able to restore a great deal of rights that are currently under siege in America, primarily the right to earn a living, the right to pursue your, your livelihood, pursue the common occupations of life, the right to make use of property. And this is actually what was specifically intended by the framers of the 14th Amendment. Uh, everyone uh, concedes that the Fourteenth Amendment was intended to constitutionalize uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Well, the very first right uh, enumerated in the Civil Rights Act of 1866 is a liberty of contract, and that's no accident because the freed slaves were deprived of their ability to seek employment, to travel, to learn about jobs off the plantation, and so on. And uh, people who would who would uh, who would try to uh, create a labor market uh, in, in the ruins of the South were, often were, were chased off. And so, of course, liberty of contract was, was very crucial and important. Now, do I care what, uh, Kurt, you describe as the left, quote-unquote, does with the Privilege of means Clause? No, I actually don't. And the reason I don't is because uh, if somebody wants to, uh, if we will concede your, your, um, <coughs> your, your argument that rights have been made up, okay, then they'll be made up. If, if, you, if you're going to make something up, you don't need a correct interpretation of the Privileges of music clause to do it. You'll use equal protection. You'll use the penumbras from uh, the commas or whatever. I mean, you know, if somebody wants to be creative and make stuff up, they'll make stuff up. And there's no reason to deprive us of the liberties that we're specifically entitled to under the original public meaning of the Constitution just because somebody might make the a, a stupid argument later. Uh, we'll deal with those arguments later. If they're, if they're stupid, they should be rejected. But uh, right now, we need to enforce the Constitution as written, and it does guarantee us uh, uh, what, uh, what what Randy Barnett, for example, has called a, a presumption of liberty. This is a free country, and it's not that everything is forbidden which is not permitted. It's quite the other way around. Uh, our governments are, are those of uh, of specifically enumerated powers, and those should be uh, in a free country read narrowly and specifically. And concepts of liberty and freedom must be read broadly. And the framers understood that. They understood that in the Fourteenth Amendment.
0: We have time for one quick question, not for Alan Gur. Not for me. In the second row here.
3: Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Zach Slayback, and I'm a high school student from Somerset, Pennsylvania. Um, my direction, my question is directed towards Mr. Soman. Um, now, in his 12th essay, Brutus uh, rails against the... Um, The preamble being used to legislate. Now, especially under U.S. v. uh, Comstock,
4: would you agree that the necessary and proper clause is really being used and that it's the perfect elastic clause, kind of as Brutus wrote against the uh,
3: preamble in that sense? Uh, I mean, it is being used to some extent in that way, although, as I said in my talk, Comstock is actually very ambiguous on what the scope of the necessary and proper clause actually is. Uh, to be honest, uh, if I had the Constitution to draft over again, I would not include the necessary and proper clause. Uh, I think that anything that is truly necessary probably would be read into the other enumerated powers a practical matter and stuff that is truly necessary I probably wouldn't want government to do. Uh, However, that said, although the necessary and proper clause is not something that I would have put in the Constitution, I don't think the clause as written actually comes anywhere close to being completely elastic in the way that uh, some of the anti-federalists like Brutus suggested because, as I said, uh, it does require, A, a connection to one of the other enumerated powers, and B, uh, the measure has to be both necessary. Necessary and proper. Uh, and so I think those are important constraints, ones, by the way, that Chief Justice John Marshall recognized uh, in his famous Supreme Court decision in McCulloch versus Maryland, where he actually specifically enumerated three or four important limitations in the scope of the necessary and proper clause, ones that I discuss uh, actually in my article. Uh, so the next proper clause, I think, is a badly drafted part of the Constitution, but it does not give Congress anything close to uh, unlimited power.
0: I'm sorry that we are out of time. Uh, next on the agenda, starting immediately without a break, is our third panel entitled Mutual Funds, Sarbanes-Oxley, and the NFL Getting Down to Business. Uh, the panel is going to be moderated by Walter Olson, who recently joined Cato as Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies, uh, continuing his illustrious career as an author, a columnist, intellectual guru of uh, tort reform, and founder of Overlawyer.com, one of the longest standing, respected, uh, and most popular uh, legal blogs. But before we adjourn this session, let's thank uh, Alan Gura, Harvey Silvergate, Ilya Soman. Thank you.